This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. At first, I was extremely intimidated because as a scientist, we're kind of trained to be very careful about what we say and you only say what you know. And I kind of got wrapped up in thinking I had to know everything about everything. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. Emily Newton is a marine biologist who grew up spending most of her time on a horse in the mountains of central Oregon. She discovered the fusion of scuba and science while an undergraduate at college and parlayed that into both her research and her work as an undersea specialist with Lindblad Expeditions which is where we first met. Welcome, Emily. Glad to have the chance to explore with you again. Yeah, I'm so excited. I'm glad to to see you again. I never knew if I get to see you, who knows when, you know? Yeah. The ships and then suddenly everyone's gone. So it's great to see you. That's quite the experience, getting close to and really personable with 100 people for a week and then boom, come a Saturday, they're off the ship at nine in the morning and a whole new bunch arrives at four wanting to be just as warmly welcomed. How do you, how do, you do that? sometimes lots of coffee (laughs) but I don't know I think honestly it's energizing I think a lot of the guests bring all that energy with them all their excitement keeps us just as fueled and ready and I personally really love people and their stories and so I think that connection is a, a huge part of the experience for me as well very cool Well, speaking of people and their stories, let's dive a little bit more into your story. As I said in the intro, you grew up in Central Oregon. Your parents were vets, if I remember. But tell me more about the young Emily Newton. Who was that young child? The young me just wanted to be outside at all times. I grew up in Lapine, Oregon, which is a really small town and a great little community where everyone knows everybody. And it's surrounded by forests and mountains and lakes. And so I really took advantage of that as a kid. I was in the dirt all the time. I was with my horses frequently, riding with my mom or trail riding mostly, but also in competition at high school levels. Uh, so yeah, I guess being the child of, a, of two veterinarians, I not only I love to be outside, but I loved animals. And so we were caring for various creatures at any one time. It could be a skunk, this, a baby skunk someone had found that we were rehabilitating or baby squirrels. On up to large farm animals. I mean, what, what was the scope of your parents' practice? 
Yeah, so they started Large Animal and they stuck with that for a, a good while, but it's, this is a retirement community and so it quickly shifted into mostly small animal. But yeah, we had our own cows and horses and chickens and ducks. I was in pig 4-H and it was everything. And my mom even was taking care of a flying squirrel at one point. Wow. So <laughs> you never knew what you'd find at our house. Rocky the flying squirrel right there in your home. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So friends love to come over and see whatever new animal was, was around. Oh, I'll bet. So would you say you were tomboyish or, I mean, you were active and outdoors, but. Oh yeah, very much so. I was always pretty, I didn't know what to do with Barbies. I, you know, I would get them and they would frequently sit in the corner and I would play with my brother's Legos or with his trailer set that could haul my briar horses around. Like I just didn't know I didn't, yeah, I didn't play dress up. I didn't care about clothes. I just was always outside or yeah, tomboy is probably a decent, decent description. But there's a lot of imagination. It sounds like in that, you know, imagining your world of your, with your horses, with your animals, that's a, just, just not the world of tea sets, right? Yes. Yeah. No, it was constantly learning from animals. I think there's so much that I gained just, there's just that feedback from animals, you know, like if you don't approach them appropriately, then they're going to react a certain way. And so I just learned a lot as a kid to read animals easily and to, you know, just respect them and learn how to interact with them. And I think that that really molded my view of the world for sure. Very cool. I know one of the fun parts of your story or one of the parts of your story I always found very, very fun was what I imagine was your signature high school accomplishment and first really dose of local fame, right? Your time as a queen? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell so, me about that. <laughs> that was, it was a weird fusion of things that I loved and things that I did not love because being a rodeo queen was, you know, you'd get all made up. You'd curl your hair and you'd put makeup on to go ride a horse. And while it was really fun and exciting, it was also just kind of strange for me that you're getting all done up to go right around the dirt. That was not a combination I imagine you had done much before that. Right. Yeah. So that part was strange, but I did love to go fast. And so <laughs> when you're getting to zip around the arena and you're waving at everybody, the horses are amped and you're amped. And so that whole energy is super fun. But I would say, while that was definitely a highlight, I mean, I loved the competition of barrel racing and I loved being, you know, actually competing and team penning, team penning is one of my favorite sports. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I haven't. What does that mean? Okay. So that is when you take an entire herd of cattle and they're in an arena and you have a team of three and they announce a number and you have to get, there's three cows with that one number. And so you're basically, you're trying to very, very quickly sort out three cows and get them in a pen at the other end of the arena. And it's all timed within a minute. Three cows out of how many? How many would be milling around in the arena? There's 30 cattle. Total. And so you have to cut the three out that have that number and then get them into a pen? Yep. Yep. And you have a minute and a half to do it. And we actually made state championships. We won state championships twice in high school for that. And that was that was probably the highlight, I would say, of my writing career. While the, the Rodeo Queen stuff was great, I loved the, oh yeah, I mean, I loved the little girls that would come up and wanted to pet your horse or talk to you. That part was awesome. But as far as competition, there's definitely a competitive side of me that that love to compete. So did the title queen come about through the other riding and cutting competitions or what, was there sort of an athletic competition dimension to the rodeo and then the beauty queen part or what went into getting anointed as rodeo queen? So that was actually part of 
it came through the team pending. So our club was represented by, we actually had two. So because there was two of us, I think they called us rodeo princesses instead of queens. But so yeah, we represented our club and we promoted our team pending club that way. And so I don't know exactly how they got us into that because normally it's for like a city or, you know, a town that is represented by a queen. But yeah, so I did it for our team pending club. I'm sticking with Queen. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I like that better as well. So. We're just going to gloss over that small little detail and go with that. So, you know, this is not the kind of upbringing that I think most people would naturally presume leads to a career in marine sciences. You know, I'm accused of making a pretty radical pivot in my career, but I don't know that I got anything on you for big pivots. So how did that come about? What's your recollection of the first glimmers in you that there might be something fishy or salty in your future? It did start early. I think my earliest memories of the ocean were probably at an aquarium. My parents, my parents loved the ocean as well. And so we'd frequently go to an aquarium or the beach. And I think they just noticed that I really took to it. I was, I was a pretty focused and quiet child, but especially if I was in an aquarium, I could sit there literally all day, just in silence, looking at what was underwater. And so I remember that as being a real highlight when we got to travel to the coast. Oh, how old do you figure that was for your first aquarium time? Like kindergarten age or? When I was one or two, we were at SeaWorld. There's photos of me there. Yeah. I don't necessarily remember that. Yeah. But then the Oregon Coast Aquarium is only three hours away. And I was obsessed with Keiko the Whale. So that whole Free Willy story and everything, I watched that movie, I don't probably a thousand times easy. <laughs> that was your parents' version of Baby Shark? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I could watch that every day. And so when I got to actually see that whale at the Oregon Coast Aquarium, something just connected that, you know, you have all these people that are trying to free this animal and... I just loved killer whales. And so when they flew him to Iceland, like I was there with my going away sign, waving to Keiko as he was in the plane with my family. We, we saw the plane take off and my parents were friends with his vet. Ah, There was actually one day where I got to walk along the top of the aquarium and see Keiko swimming in the aquarium. Wow. So loving aquaria, I completely get that. But that's, you know, the spectator side of it. What was the pathway that took you to being so immersed, I mean, figuratively, academically, and literally immersed in the ocean? It had to be going to the beach and just being set free with my buckets and my ID books. So when Keiko the whale was flown to Iceland, my parents knew that we had to find some kind of substitute for <laughs> going to the aquarium. And so we actually started every year, maybe once or twice a year, going to Vancouver Island, where there were wild killer whales. And so we'd see them, but frequently we weren't on the boat all the time. And so I had, suddenly I had all day to just play in the intertidal zone. You know, I would spend all day with my buckets and ID books and my huge, like big muck boots just slopping around. And I would collect little fish and figure out what they were. And I would collect the little limpets and I had my little species ID guide that I actually still have to this day. It's all wrinkled and crinkly and crusty because I brought it into the intertidal zone with me. So you caught it wet yeah. once or twice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I would always bring the buckets back to my parents and show them what I found and then go release them. So a lot of it was probably 
yeah, just exploring it on my own. And then I started interviewing the fishermen on the dock whenever I was waiting for us to go on our own trip to go salmon fishing or to go watch whales there was always fishermen coming in with their catch. And so I was asking if I could, you know, can I have those fish guts so I can dissect them? <laughs> this is this is not your average <laughs> yeah. teenager's interest. This no, is very normal. cool. <laughs> I love fish heads though. You know, you could look into the eye, you could look at, you could, all the guts were so cool because you figure out what they ate. And so I was super- Had you had some experience thanks to your parents' work of sort of dissecting, I mean, did their work help you become familiar with more than just the outside of animals and appreciate that fascination and that ability to care for and peel? You know, if you looked inside, if, did your parents do surgery? Yes, yeah. So I watched all kinds of surgeries and loved every second of it. Dad would be pointing out, you know, what each part was and what he was fixing and Sometimes he would open up the gut of a dog and could show like, hey, he ate this rug and he's all clogged up and <laughs> now we can take it out. <laughs> and, and maybe it sounds a little morbid, but even if our own dogs passed, we would, if we didn't know why, like they would do a quick, what do you, what's that word? Necropsy. Necropsy. Yeah. So they'd find out what happened and I don't know. I was always surrounded by that. So blood and guts to me was a matter, like you said, of medicine, of healing and knowing was better than not knowing. Fascinating. So you're intertitling, and if I remember, you got certified as a scuba diver at an astonishingly young age. And this is one of the sort of fascinating things, again, about your experience to me is I think you had a really, truly horrible first scuba dive experience, and yet somehow are now an expert cold water diver. So where was that scuba diving experience? And, you know, how, how bad was it really? <laughs> well, I was 11 and to my 11 year old minds, you know, I thought I was going to die. <laughs> it was <gasps> terrifying. So yeah, my, essentially my father recognized that I wanted to be in the water. Like not only was I wanting to watch killer whales on the surface or to be on the coast, like I really wanted to see what was underneath it all because the low tide zone only goes so far. I just, I wanted to know. And he really wanted to know too. A lot of his passion for scuba diving was passed on to me. He had never done it, but he always wanted to. And so he asked me when I was 11, if I would be interested in being his dive buddy. And I immediately said yes. And we're in central Oregon. There is, at that time, there was one dive shop and you could get certified in a lake. And I believe the month when we got certified was around September or October. So it's not the warmest here, but it's not awful. And we went to Coltis Lake, which was only like an hour drive. And I remember I loved the classwork. I loved learning all the science of, you know, how it worked. And I loved the pool work because it's, you know, pools are nice and clear and warm. But then we got to the lake and I didn't know how much gear I'd have to wear. I don't think that's probably what triggered my fear was I was pretty claustrophobic around my neck and my head. And to go into a cold lake, you have to wear this thick, neoprene hood and this wetsuit that made my arms stick out because I was so small and just <laughs> a little penguin walking around with this super thick wetsuit and you know all my gear and the the hood just made me feel so so scared I just I couldn't hear I couldn't move well and so once we get down into the lake it's just murky it's this we hit the bottom in this plume of you know just silt engulfs us and then my our dive instructor starts asking us to demonstrate skills like okay take off your mask 
And I remember using like, no, 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 thanks. <laughs> demonstrate those skills. And so there were probably two or three times where I would remove my mask, panicked, inhale that cold water up your nose, bolt to the surface, just, you know, several times of that and just really scared. So cold water was not my thing. Was that the first time you had put a heavy wetsuit on was at yeah. the lake for that dive? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that shockingly unfamiliar, and I hate them. I totally hate them. Claustrophobic. Yeah. yeah. Having that first dive experience, and by the way, I have always counseled people who are interested in scuba diving, you know, find your scuba shop or your YMCA, do the classwork, do the pool work. When they start talking to you about a lake or a quarry, run for the hills, save up your money, go to someplace with clear, warmer water, do a little refresher, and get your certificate there, because... You're a very rare bird indeed if you're actually going to want to dive ever, much less more than once, in a quarry or a murky lake. So I have huge sympathy for But you overcame that. And, and you know, not only overcame that, but that was your first dive experience, petrified, struggling with the basic skills, hating the hood and the things around your neck. You know, it's a big leap for me to connect that first experience at age 11 or 12 with the dry suit, cold water expert diver that I met a couple of years ago. So what got you past that? How did you move beyond that? I mean, you're a great rider and you just had a crappy scuba diving experience. I would have gone back to the barn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I credit, I guess I credit some of my curiosity was one. I mean, I just, I really wanted to do it. If I got my head on something where I really was determined, frequently I would push through it. So that was a huge part. I just had to know I, I wanted to see a coral reef. And so when my parents said, not all diving is like this, we can go somewhere warmer and clearer. I was more than willing to give it a try again. And so my family fortunately had the ability to take us to the Caribbean. And that's where I really started to gain those skills and relax and realize no, this is okay. I can, I can do this. And so, and then also the first time you see a coral reef, the last thing you're thinking about is for me anyways, I was not thinking about my fears at all because there's all these, this whole new world that I was suddenly immersed in coral everywhere and colors and fish, you know, I just was so, so excited to be there. And so I think that really kept me going just to see, to see that next site and to, to explore really. Yeah, I, I understand that. I can get on a reef and just, I rarely move. I find some little place, I hunker down and, and I just watch the life of the reef at all the little scales, the little bitty blenny and the cleaner fish and the big guys cruising by. It's, it reminds me of sitting busy town square in a European capital and there's everything from kids in strollers to dating couples to vendors hawking around. It's just this wonderful cavalcade of, of life at all sorts of scales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's just a buzz, like you said, with life. I, you just can't stop watching. And suddenly you, you run out of air and you realize you have to leave. And that was, <laughs> that was always the hardest part. Like, I think once I was out of the lake scenario and I got to experience that, that's what I was hooked. Yeah. At that point, there's no going back. <laughs> so that is, sounds like you pretty had by high school, starting high school, probably had your sights set on staying with the ocean as a path through life. Were you thinking career at that point or were you just 
thinking, find more ways to feed this interest and job or income or whatever will sort itself out later? How are, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, I was pretty focused on a career early on. I would say sophomore year of high school, I pretty well knew that I wanted to go for marine science. And yeah, I just kept working towards that. I knew that a solid biology foundation would would help get me there. And so when it came to applying to colleges, I wanted to stay in state for financial reasons, but I also knew that Oregon State had this fantastic Hatfield Marine Science Center where I could live on the coast and study just marine science for an entire term. And that was actually the only place that I applied. I was just like, I want to go to Oregon State and I want to study, you know, marine science. They have a great marine biology program. And I, it was weird how focused I was. I wasn't confused at all. Apparently, I just knew where I needed to be. Well, and it worked really well. Yeah, yeah, it did. I have no regrets. It's something I knew that I wanted to continue being in the water, if at all possible. And I knew that I loved science. And so going for a marine science degree just made sense. So what mix of classwork and fieldwork or research were you able to do as an undergrad? I think it's often the case that you've got that passion, you've got that spark, and then you get to the academic curriculum and it's three semesters of prove to me you've learned some vocabulary and then maybe we'll go do something interesting. And I think you know far too much of conventional undergraduate schooling manages to beat the passion out of students. What was your experience and your mix? I think that's definitely fair to say. And, and maybe... Because I had seen, because I had seen coral reefs and because I had explored on my own on the coastline, that kept driving me in the background of you're right, like all this memorization and all this, you know, text. But thankfully, I discovered summer internships as well. And that set me free because that was truly where I made the connection that I could use scuba diving for my work. Because before that, I think I think I just thought it might be a nice pastime. But I remember being at this biology freshman introduction kind of course, and they invited several students that had been on these summer internships before and where they got the funding. They were talking about, you know, what they had done. And this gal, her name's Megan Cook, and we're still still good friends and colleagues. And I saw her get up on the stage and she talked about her summer internship in the Bahamas studying invasive lionfish. And she was using scuba diving every day. They were doing all this field work and they were collecting all this population data and samples. And I just realized it was kind of this light bulb, like I can scuba dive, I could do that. And yeah, that's, I, that's exactly what I did. I pretty much the next week I emailed that same professor and I said, are you looking for any other students in, the, in this year or the next, you know, like I know how to scuba dive and I can get all the proper certifications because you actually need, you need to have a scientific diving certification, which I didn't know at the time, but we were able to obtain. And so anyways, I basically had a great role model that showed me that women can go scuba diving and they can be a part of this marine science field. You know, I just didn't know that you could combine the two. And that really set a spark. It set a wildfire really, because that's what I've been doing ever since. How can I use scuba diving and marine science at the same time? Those are golden moments when you find something you completely love can be an integral part of work that earns you a living. So off you go to the Bahamas. I mean, lionfish are one of the most, to me, crazy, bizarre mixtures of spectacularly fabulous, elegant critters to watch in the wild and really damaging 
dangerous critters to have in the wrong place. And I, and I know more than just lionfish as invasive species have been part of some of the work that you've done. But tell us a little bit about the, the problem of invasive species. And what, what did you learn about that challenge through your work with the lionfish in the Bahamas? Because they're, they're not only not from the Bahamas, they're like originally not from the Atlantic Ocean at all, right? Correct. Yeah. And I, I learned a lot about, you know, their introduction and, you know, how did they become established? And then when I actually went to the Bahamas, I got to see the impact they were having in real time. How did they get there? Well, there's some debate. They don't know for sure, but there was a, a hurricane. I believe it was Hurricane Andrew that they think potentially sparked people releasing their own pet lionfish in anticipation of the hurricane coming. And so they were releasing it into the wild. It could have been something like that. I think there was also a large aquarium that potentially was damaged. Yeah, Hurricane Andrew, 1992, just was like a rotary sander running through South Dade County. I was actually on the ground about 10 days after the aftermath of Andrew. And, you know, all the typical scenes you expect to see of boats lifted up and moved way on inland. A major corporation had just recently finished occupying a massive new gleaming super modern corporate headquarters right out along the shore. It was now a see-through building. Every window was gone and all the internal furnishings on all three floors had just basically been scraped out by the wind on the upper levels and by storm surge on the lower levels. Uh, it was just completely astonishing. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was in a, a commercial or a visitor aquarium that got overtopped as well and just sloshed these guys out. Well, that makes sense because I had never witnessed anything like that before of what you're describing. And so to see it on paper, it just sounded like, oh, people went and released fish. But you're right. I mean, it sounds like it was a lot more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow they get there. And why does that matter? You know, maybe we should just let them all live anywhere they get to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they get there. And, and unfortunately, they're, they're probably here to stay, especially with how resilient they are. I remember seeing one lionfish swim by that literally had probably a quarter size hole through it. Like it had been speared, but it had somehow gotten off the spear and was swimming by, still living its life. And I mean, who knows if that one actually would live long-term, but still, I just, I witnessed how hardy they were and how hungry they were. I did several feeding experiments in Aquaria just to see how many little one inch, one and a half fish they would eat, 20 or 22 in one sitting. They have these amazing stomachs that can expand, you know, many times their own size. And the native fish populations are, because this is a new novel species, a new predator they've never seen before, all those native fish, they don't even know what hit them. I literally would watch these, like you said, they're majestic, they're beautiful, they're mesmerizing. And the the little coral reef fish did the same thing I would do. They would just sit there and look at the lionfish and the lionfish would just suck them up like popcorn. Not, didn't even, didn't even hesitate. It was just so easy. Just, so the, the lionfish were having this smorgasbord on the coral reefs. That is one of their magic skills to sit there all majestic with their feathery fins out, like hovering motionless. And then faster than you can blink, they've leapt two feet and grabbed a fish. Yes. And you can't even tell that they moved anything. You can't see a flipper that flipped, except they just jumped, you know, a foot and took a fish. Yeah. Amazing speed. And I always loved watching them because you could tell when they would get excited, like they're, everything that the coral reef fish can see is still, like you said, it's just perfect little screen. But then behind it, it's like preparing. It's so excited. <laughs> it's back 
you know, tail fin is getting ready and then it's just this lightning fast. Sorry, I just clapped. Uh, no, that's a good sound effect. <laughs> now it is, it's yeah. kind of like a cat that's down and, and quivering right before it leaps for a bird. You can see that the whole body getting ready. Yeah, very it's cool. It's just so excited and quivering with anticipation. So we met aboard a Lindblad National Geographic ship in the Antarctic a couple of years ago. How did you get connected to that opportunity? And tell us, what is that role? What is that job? I became connected to Lindblad through a colleague. So I had, right after I graduated from college, I went to work for the University of North Carolina and we were studying shipwrecks. And fortunately, it was another position where I could scuba dive a lot. And my colleague, Alyssa Adler, she got this job with Lindblad. And so she left. And for the next year, while I was still at the lab, I was kind of keeping tabs on what she was up to. And I just had no idea that a job like that existed, where when you work as an undersea specialist for Lindblad expeditions, you have this amazing opportunity to be that conduit between the guests that are on the ship and the undersea world. We get to bring a lens, a camera down with us and try to make that connection between the two, between people that are visiting a certain place, whether it's Alaska or Baja or Antarctica, just to give them a view into what lives down there. I think you touched on the the idea behind this when you were talking about your tide pool experience that, you know, if you're a guest on those ships, and I remember the first time I went out on a Lindblad ship was as a guest in Baja, California, and it seemed to me it was a week-long experience. And the beautiful blue waters of the Sea of Cortez were like a blue carpet the ship moved across so that we could get to a beach or some islands and get in zodiacs and go look at birds or go ashore and go hike. And as an oceanographer, it was driving me nuts. I mean, here we are on top of what is the world, probably the most extraordinary living aquarium, natural living aquarium on this planet. And it had no role in the guest experience, basically, except to be this blue tablecloth we had to go across to get to the birds or to get to the hike. And I remember, you know, throwing a, <laughs> throwing a bit of a fit at the expedition leader on that trip about you know, how crazy this was, that somehow somehow the underwater world has to be brought into the guest experience. And uh, he said, well, yeah, that's a great idea. You should tell Sven that. And I said, yeah, like I know Sven Lindblad, sure, that's going to happen. <laughs> but apparently he was taken enough with the idea that he made the connection of me to Sven. And I'm sure Sven was already a good ways down this road with that kind of idea, but it was a real delight to get to help kick that can along the road and, and try to turn that around. And to me, it's been transformative to have undersea specialists like you diving, bringing back video, sometimes bringing back samples and critters and really help the people aboard un understand what's below the water and how that how that whole underwater realm works. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you said something because I think that's what kind of continues to propel this undersea program forward is people want to see that and they keep communicating how important the undersea program is. And it makes Lindblad so unique. There's I don't personally know of any other expedition type experiences where you get to see that with a company. And so I think it, it makes us unique and it's crucial because we spend so much of our time, like you said, on that blue carpet. You just, you want to remove the veil. We got to see what's down there. We got to explore it. And I think the guests love it. So everyone, I've certainly had the experience of walking into a setting where I partly knew why I was there and that I belonged there, but it suddenly seems a pretty daunting circumstance or a daunting audience. And you went aboard a Lindblad ship as part of the expedition crew, pretty, pretty young age, freshly minted marine biology degree, but you're on a ship of, you know, a hundred 
50 something, 60 something, 70 something people who've are near the end or retired from successful careers in different walks of life. And you know, it's kind of like suddenly you've walked into a room full of your parents and their friends, but you're now the expert in that room. It's kind of, that had to be an interesting moment. Do you recall what that was like? How did you navigate those identities as young and freshly minted, but now the expert? So, that, so they say, how do I hold that? How do I own that? Yeah, it's it's quite the intense transition because like you said, I'm fresh out of college. Maybe I have a couple years of of work under my belt, so that helped, but it was yeah, I was just so much younger than everyone I was teaching. And at first it was intimidating because anyone could be in the audience. It could be an oceanographer and astronaut, it could be a business person, it could be at one point I actually gave a plankton talk to a planktonologist. So sometimes you're speaking to people in their field. And at first I was extremely intimidated because as a scientist, we're kind of trained to be very careful about what we say and you only say what you know. And I kind of got wrapped up in thinking I had to know everything about everything. You should see my first couple months of study notes. I tried to learn everything all at once and it wasn't working. You know, I was scared for sure. But then I transitioned into this perception that, you know, people are just curious, just like me, and they just want to know, they just want to know what you know, and they, they have questions. And even if I didn't have the exact answer, as long as I could go on that journey with them and find the answer or, you know, just discuss it with what I did know, I, I quickly learned that everybody just wanted to feed that curiosity and wanted to have that conversation. And it was less about me having to know everything. Yeah, it's a, that is a really great insight. You know, there's a facetious version of that insight that's commonplace in Washington, which is you don't actually need to have all the answers. You just need one answer more than the other guy. <laughs> but I think the way you came to think about it is the, the more valuable and better way, which is know what you know and have the communication skills and willingness to share it. And beyond that, be co-explorers go on that learning journey together. And just and that just takes now and then the bit of humility to say, oh, that's a really interesting question. I don't actually know that answer. Let's think about it. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's how I started to approach it. And that was a huge, just a huge change in how I mentally thought about the whole process. And honestly, it made it so much more interesting because whether I was talking to kids or maybe someone who was 80, it was fun to get them thinking, you know, like, well, what do you think? What do you think the answer is? And how could we figure that out? And it just made our conversation so much more exploratory, like you said. And yeah, I, I'm glad I learned that lesson because we don't have to have all the answers. We just have to be curious and to share what we know. And frequently, like you said, like people bring a lot to the table as well. And so it was fun to learn from them. I learn from guests all the time. So having met hundreds of people from lots of walks of life and political persuasions on your various expeditions, as you think about the state of the ocean today and the future prospects of the ocean, do you take any insights, points of hope or points of concern from what you've seen of how people, how people whose lives have not been as intertwined with nature as yours has, what they're thinking of, how they engage with nature? Does that give you some sense of optimism or concern? I would say mostly optimism. I tend to be optimistic in general, but I was always encouraged by someone who, say, lived in a city the majority of their life, 
I was always encouraged by someone like that who came on our ships and left with this newfound respect and appreciation. And it just, it showed me that no matter what your background was or, you know, what your living situation is, or if you never have seen maybe the ocean before, nature is so powerful in how it affects each of us, I think. And all you need is that opportunity to, to feel that and to experience that. And so I was really encouraged by the power of whether it was actually going on a ship or even sometimes video. I mean, I think there's these opportunities for connection and understanding and respect for the natural world all over the place. It can be in your backyard. It can be on a Lindblad expedition. It can be a simple conversation. And I think I realized the power of that because I heard so many conversations of people that would go home and they just had a new, a new perspective, I guess, is what it was. They were going to approach life a little bit differently because of what they had seen. That's very cool. Are there any particular single stories that stand out or that um, scales fall from their eyes moment with a guest or something they said to you that let you really appreciate how transformed they felt? Yeah, I guess for me, a lot of them were with kids because I, I frequently will run the Global Explorers program on board. And I do remember the first group of kids that I ever took out and led them on these different expeditions and it was this family of, it was like two or three different siblings. So there's five of them and they were super energetic, super loud and rambunctious. And I remember that they actually went quiet <laughs> one time because they had microscopes and they had magnifying glasses and they were looking at stuff that we had just collected and they were identifying stuff. And then there would be this you know, chitter chatter between them as they're discussing what they found. And then it went back to silence because they were so raptured in it. And so I guess that group really struck me because, I mean, they were naturally curious kids. I mean, kids are really good at it in general, but they still, it was fun to give them the tools to explore on their own. That was a really powerful, powerful moment. That's very cool. Yeah. But then there's also these, you know, sometimes you get someone who's never been on a boat before and you're helping someone get into a Zodiac and or they've never been on a small boat before. And so that was just as, I guess it's not any one person, but it happens enough where you see these people that are just awestruck and they don't even have words. And especially when you take someone to the face of a glacier or when they get to see Antarctica for the first time, they just, it's an experience. It's frequently, we don't have the correct words for that. And I think that experience, those emotions are lifelong. And I know that they're sharing those stories for the rest of their lives. And that has a huge impact. Yeah, I, I've certainly seen some examples of that among folks I've traveled with. I think you're right, Antarctica in particular is probably the tops the list, I think. Someone who came with me on a trip down there who was sort of kind of went along because my spouse wanted to. And I kind of, yeah, I kind of knew it was probably going to be interesting. And and now just does not have words to describe how you know stupendous, spectacular, emotional. They, they, they ramble on through sort of their entire list of superlatives. And then they stop and say, no, I really don't have words to describe it. <laughs> it's really very fun. Yeah, exactly. So I happen to know that you are nowhere near done exploring and there's a big adventure in the offing for you in the next phase of your research career. Off to New Zealand, early part of 2022 on a Fulbright scholarship. Congratulations. That's a, that's a great achievement. Where will you be and what kind of work do you hope to do down there? Yeah, so January of next year, I'll be flying to Dunedin, New Zealand, and that's where I'll be based. And I'm planning to attend the University of Otago. And 
I'll be working with a lab that recently, like around 2017, recently discovered that there's these rafts of kelp that are being uprooted from islands like New Zealand, but also other subantarctic islands. And they are buoyant. And so they are floating on currents and with wind. It's a very long journey, but eventually they are making landfall in Antarctica, frequently on the Antarctic Peninsula. And so I'm joining this lab and I'm hoping to study the little critters that live in those rafts. So frequently kelp rafts host all kinds of organisms, whether it's tiny sea stars or little crustaceans. They look like little shrimp, but they're like isopods or amphipods. There's maybe little mollusks, things like little snails and limpets. So my question is, could these creatures eventually survive in Antarctica? And this is of particular importance to understand because Antarctica is one of the most quickly warming places on this globe. And so very soon, potentially within you know, the next century, especially the Antarctic Peninsula, it might be warm enough to where these creatures could establish. And so once again, I'm kind of looking at, I guess you could call them potentially invasive species, but it's just they're novel. They're new to the environment. And Antarctica is very, it's very fragile in a way. It's been fairly isolated and these creatures have evolved together. And so when you bring newcomers into that situation, it's kind of hard to know what could happen. That's one of the interesting things about Antarctica, and I bet somehow this must factor into your work. It's the only place on the planet where ocean waters can circulate all the way around in a circle, you know, following a line of latitude, if you will, all the way around. No bit of land interrupts it. It gets pretty narrow where the tip of South America comes near the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, but you can do continuous laps. <laughs> if you're a molecule of water, you can do continuous laps through that Southern Ocean. And that's a pretty strong current and pretty distinct ocean boundary between the Antarctic waters. In fact, it's called the Antarctic Convergence, right? So it is like there's a bit of a soft fence, a soft watery fence around Antarctica. And critters either leave, live inside that fence or outside. The whales and seals and seabirds could cross it. So is that also part of the question of can these hitchhikers on the kelp rafts, can they even survive the temperature change and the ocean changes in the ocean water long enough to get to Antarctica? Yeah, and that will be an important part. Like, can they be viable? Because frequently these rafts maybe take a year or two years to reach it with the distance they cover. They don't take a direct route by any means. And I think what's so cool about this story is the scientist, Dr. Cridge Fraser, she actually published a paper that is along the lines of what you were saying, you know, the Antarctica is isolated, things are not really getting in. But then when they found the kelp on the shore, they knew that that wasn't true. And that's what's amazing about science is she's like, I changed my mind. And that's what's beautiful about this process is like, okay, we know this is happening. And then she went to her oceanographer colleagues and said, how is this happening? And so it led to really an entirely new understanding of the currents. They realized that their models were missing a crucial component and it had to do with what's called Stokes drift. So there's, you have these surface waves that are helping push particles horizontally. And so all these factors, it just is amazing how one little discovery, one little photo of this piece of kelp on the Antarctic shore led to a whole new understanding of, you know, ocean circulation, but also realizing that there's so much we don't know and so much we need to learn about 
these organisms that are arriving in Antarctica and coming from nearby islands. Yeah, you know, one unexpected observation, one question that pokes at a fresh perspective, sometimes just this whole cascade of new questions and new what-ifs and how-coulds. Yeah, those are really fun moments to find yourself in the middle of. So you can for sure see down your road to January and the 10 months, I think it is, of your Fulbright. I'm curious how much further down the road you can see, you know, what your, how vivid or dim, distinct or fuzzy, your sense of the longer future, or if you even think about that, or how you even think about that. Yeah, I I think about it in, in broad strokes, for sure. And I think what's cool about our life experiences in general is we, we learn something about ourselves from every single job or every single thing we do. And so like, I know that from Lindblad, I want my future to incorporate teaching because I just adore sharing that information and communicating science. And I also know that I love to scuba dive from all my previous experiences. So I want to keep maintaining my time in the field as much as possible. And as far as looking forward after Fulbright, there's the potential that I could extend and acquire the funding to obtain my PhD while I'm there. And so that is a definite possibility. And I, I plan to get my master's first and then kind of make that decision then. And after that, yeah, it's, it's really, I'm really curious about careers in science communication. Maybe it'll be as an instructor or professor. I would love to potentially be based at a marine science station where I could do both research and teaching. So I think that's what I like about marine science is it does seem to be diversifying and it does seem to have all these different opportunities to teach and do research. You know, it seems to me you've got your finger on or you've identified, to use a biological metaphor, you've identified at least two, two strands of the DNA that you want to have make up your career. But just how they will combine, what form that will take over time. In a sense, it's kind of less important. I, I think that's. I think this is a lot like how I feel I've navigated. Is I know these three things are true or want to be true, and and they can manifest themselves in lots of different ways. So I'll consider each of those opportunities as different junctures arise. You you know you finish a job or you finish a degree, kind of a chance to look again at the option set, look again at the items on the list, and see which one is most faithful, the, the best the best embodiment of those strands of DNA. And, you know, you add some over time and you drop some out over time, but. Yeah, exactly. And that's how I feel is, you know, Lindblad was never part of my plan. I didn't know it existed. And so I also, I want to be open to changes in my plan. And like you said, you have to reassess at every stage and just take advantage of those opportunities that are available to you at any one given time. I had one of my favorite and most powerful adages in, uh, from my astronaut days that we recited to each other frequently. Plans are nothing. Planning is everything. The planning that taught you and helped you recognize what are those important bits? What are the bits that really have to be true? And how do those intersect with or contradict other factors that might come into play? And really investing a lot of time and really incisive creative thought into the planning, it would let you write down a plan and you could put it all on paper, but the value was not going to be what you put on paper because life was never going to serve things up in quite the way you had imagined. But what you had learned through all the conversation and the planning, that was going to be a treasure trove to help you move forward. Yeah, I found that to be true as well. I have countless lists in my journal of what I think is going to happen and what I want to happen. And frequently it's 
it, they're not the same, but like you said, there's kind of those core seeds of what you know, what you hope will grow into something bigger. Well, Emily, it's just, it's been a delight having more time to talk with you and share our stories. And I've loved learning more about your stories and your pathway. You're, you know, you're not just an explorer in the physical world. You are an explorer in heart and soul. It just shines through and in every bit of how you talk about life and your pathway forward. I love your mindset that knowing is better than not knowing. That really predisposes you to to question and to ask and to probe and to try things. So I can't wait till our paths cross again, maybe on a, another Lindblad expedition sometime in the future. Or you know, if you extend and stay on at Otago for a PhD, I might just have to make my way down there and check in on you, see how you're doing. Yeah, I think I think you would have to. You'd have to stop by for an update and we'd be happy to host you. It would be a delight. Emily Newton, marine scientist and teacher in the making and the becoming. Thanks so much for joining me. Loved exploring with you. Thank you. This has been great. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.